if you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation. Revelation, we're in the most exciting book in the Bible, the most misunderstood book in the Bible. For this series, we're in Revelation. And I want to talk to you for a second about Revelation because it is misunderstood. It's scary. Uh, for a lot of people, they don't go there because they can't understand it. But I want to just ask, let's use our collective wisdom here. What do you know about the book of Revelation? Just shout it out. Things that you know about the book of Revelation. End times. End times. Woo! Yes, good answer. Jesus is coming again. Very clear at the end. He's coming. It addresses seven churches. Yes, it is one of the only books with a promise. That is such a great point. It's a great reason for us to study it. It's because you are given a promise that if you study it and follow it, it will have an impact. God will bless you. Great. What else? Tribulation. What Tribulation, that there's going to be hard times. Okay, what else? White horse, red horse. White horse, red horse. Black horse, gray horse, I think, right? It sounds like a Dr. Seuss thing. Okay, yeah. <laughs> What else? Monsters, Armageddon. Is it easy to read or hard to read? Hard. Why? Symbolism kills you. You don't know what it means. Okay. You guys are smart. You already know everything you need to know about Revelation. Now, this is an interesting thing. When you're uh, sitting down at the beginning of a movie or you're starting to read a book, how do you like it when somebody tells you the ending? All right. How many of you have read Hunger Games? How many of you are excited about the movie for Hunger Games? How many of you think you may go to the movie? How many of you would be bummed if I told you how it ends right now? Yes. If you really don't care, I'm going to tell you because I do that. All right. No, you'd be bummed because you're like, I don't want to know the ending. I want it to be a surprise. I want to have the anticipation of it. So why does God come to us and he gives us the end of the story Uh, right out of the gate. And in fact, he tells us, you've got to read this. You've got to follow it. Even if you don't study all of the rest of the Bible, make sure you study this book. It's so important. Why does he do that? It reminds me of uh, something that happened years ago. Uh, A couple walked into the office of the president of Harvard. And uh, she was dressed in a gingham dress, and he was uh, sort of disheveled in sort of a threadbare suit. And they came to the secretary, and they said, we'd like to see the president of Harvard. And she looked them up and down, and she said, you know, he's super busy. I don't think he'd have time for you. And they said, that's okay, we'll wait. And so they sat down in the waiting area, and they sat there for hours. And she was very uncomfortable. And finally, she told the president there was this couple that were here to see them. If if he could just see them for a minute, they would get out of the office. That's what they need. So eventually, uh, he comes out, and, you know, he he doesn't even take them into his office because he doesn't want to spend any time with them. And he says, what can I help you with? And they said, well, our son went to Harvard for one year, and uh, last year he was accidentally killed, and we would like to make a donation. We would like to have some kind of monument erected in his name here at Harvard. And he looked at them and he said, do you have any idea what you're asking me? If we put up monuments for every past student who had died, this place would look like a cemetery. And they said, no, no, well, we were thinking more of like putting up a building or something. And the president looked at them and said, are you kidding? Do you have any idea of the cost of what it would be to build a building? Looking at them, he knew they couldn't afford it. And so he said, we have $7.5 million of physical property here at Harvard. And the woman looked at her husband and said, $7.5 million, is that all it is? Maybe we'll just start our own universe.
University. And they moved to Palo Alto, California, and Mr. and Mrs. Leland Stanford started a university in honor of their son. That is a cool story. That is a cool story. Don't you think the president of Harvard wishes he had known at the beginning of that day what he soon found out, right? Do you think he would have maybe handled that situation just a tad differently if he had known? And that's why God gives us revelation. We need to know how things end because it gives us clarity about how we live today. It gives us perspective on the decisions that we make, on the priorities that we keep, on the things that we run after. Knowing how it ends and who wins, it helps us to live today. That's the reason that God says, listen, I'm going to tell you how it ends so that you put everything in perspective, so that every decision is put in the context of the whole. That's the reason that he does it. Let me tell you a couple of other things about Revelation. We won't spend very much time in the whole book. We're looking at a thin slice of it, but this is helpful for you. It's called apocalyptic literature. That's the reason it's so bizarre. It's the reason that it's so much different than the rest of the Bible is because it is a certain uh, literary genre called apocalyptic, which was really big back in that day. In fact, it sort of ran for 200 years before Jesus to about 100 years. Revelation is one of the last pieces of apocalyptic literature is a lot of times it was written in this way. And here's what you need to know about apocalyptic literature. It's the reason that it's the way it is. is because there is always a good and a bad. It is very defined. There is God and there's Satan. There's you know, wholeness and goodness and there's wickedness and evil and they are battling together. And if you read through Revelation, you know that that's exactly what happens. It is almost always written during a period of time where the readers are going through a super hard time. And the reason for it is because God's trying to give them hope. He's saying, this is how it's going to end. You can hold on. You can make it to the end. Just hold on. And it's symbolic, right? And the symbolism, there's a lot of reasons for it. But one of the main reasons is because in that day and age when Rome was heavily persecuting the church, this is the end of the first century, and Christians are now dying for their faith, and they are being shut out, and they are being ostracized and heavily persecuted. And John realizes, if I just write a straight book about how everything ends, the readers are going to get wiped out. And so I'm going to couch it in symbolism. And the readers will get it, and the Romans won't. And that's part of the reason that there's so much symbolism in the book. Now, here's the thing that's super important to understand because it just sounds so mysterious to us, and it's because we didn't live in that day and age. It's because we don't understand the symbols, whereas the audience that's reading this, John's uh, audience, is going to understand it a little bit more. Let me ask you this question. <clears throat> How many of you are Lakers fans? Okay, I mean, like, serious. Like, you know what happened this last weekend, right? You do or not? I mean, don't tell me you're a Lakers fan and you have no clue what happened this last weekend. Do you know how they did in Boston and New York and all that? Yeah? Okay. And how many of you are not Lakers fans, don't care about basketball? Okay. So let me read something, and some of you are going to get this, and some of you aren't. Okay. Suppose you read yesterday in the L.A. sports section these words. Let's see if I can read them myself. After ascending in Beantown, the Lake Show has had a great fall. The Black Mamba and the A-Train, 
and the one they call Picasso have come to the Big Apple to devour the child from the nation of the Great Wall. Okay, you still have it? Okay, good. Woe to the state of gold. Woe to the land of the setting sun. There is no world peace. For the crimson horn has swallowed the fish and hurled the purple and gold into the great abyss. Okay, so how many of you would have sort of a clue what that's about? All right, Craig, you're going to help me right here. Okay, so you define it for us. And how many of you have no idea what we're even talking about, pretty much? Okay, you're not big Lakers fans. That's cool. All right, so after ascending in Beantown means... Beat Celtics on Friday night. That's right. The Lake Show has had a great fall. Okay. Who's the Lake Show? The Lakers. Okay. The Black Mamba, Mamba is Kobe Bryant. The A-Train is Bynum. Good. And the one they call Picasso. Pow, come on. They call him Picasso. Sorry, I don't call him that. So other people do. All right. That, that's what this writer calls him. All right. And they came to the Big Apple, which is? New York, everybody knows that. To devour the child from the nation of the Great Wall, who is? Jeremy Lin. He's the new, like, sensation because he's of Chinese descent, the only NBA-born guy from Chinese descent. Woe to the state of gold. That's us. Woe to the land of the setting sun. That's us. There is no world peace, which is who? Ron Artest. And he is gone. Yes, okay. And uh, for the crimson horn, who would that refer to? Jeremy Lin, because he is from Harvard. Not Stanford, but Harvard. Okay. Uh, has swallowed the fish, who is Derek Fisher, who is too old to play point guard anymore. Great guy, but too old. And hurled the purple and gold, which are who? The Lakers into the great abyss. Okay. So here's the deal. If you are a Lakers fan, you sort of get that. And if I was a better writer, you'd get it even more, right? Okay, John's better than me. Um, but if you don't know it, you don't know it. So here's what you always have to do in Revelation. You have to go back and understand what the original audience meant or would have understood the symbols to be. And so we need to work at that. We don't just get it. We're like the people that don't, aren't Lakers fans. We don't understand this terminology. This is the key. And this is part of the problem. People take Revelation and they think that it's only meant to be a book to tell us about what's going to happen you know, in 2012 and beyond. But here's what you need to know. This had a meaning for the audience it was written to. For Christians living at the end of the first century, they would have understood certain things. And if you want to get it, if I want to get it, it's super important. Revelation is hacked apart by people all the time because they just think, oh, we can just take a newspaper in one hand and we can just interpret all these signs. No, you need to understand what the signs meant to the people it was written to. I'm a little keyed up on that. I get angry when people do that. Okay, so in Revelation chapter 4, we get the last scene of the story. And so let's read this together. It says these words. After this, we're going to read this together. Here we go. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Hold for a second. He says, I looked up. And there was a door standing open. And here's what the idea here is of the door. The door is a glimpse into heaven. How many of you have ever wondered what heaven is like? We do. We read books about it. People that die and say they go to heaven and we want to read. And it's this little kid and he tells us his stuff and we're all into it. Well, you don't have to do that. Because John, 
who God actually took into heaven to see this, uh, tells us. And it's God's word. It's like this is really how it is. We have to peel away the symbolism a little bit, but we get a glimpse. It's like pulling back the curtain on heaven. That's what's going to happen right here. There's a voice like a trumpet in that day and age. A trumpet was blown to announce royalty. It was to announce that the royal court was either in session or the king was coming. That is the idea of the trumpet. Is you know, you're not just going to be looking at something that's sort of interesting. It's like you're going to be looking at the king. You're going to be looking at royalty as the doors of heaven open. You're walking in what we're finding out. You're walking into the throne room, the throne room of the king. All right, and it says, uh, let's see, we said come up here, show you what must take place after this. So this is a glimpse into the future. It says that once I was in the spirit and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the reason that John's taken up in the spirit is just a way of God saying, listen, if I revealed myself to you just in your natural state, you would not be able to comprehend this. In fact, you would probably die. I will put you into a condition. I will put you into the spirit so that you can see and you can understand. And so John is taken in the spirit into the throne room in heaven. Now, here's the idea with a throne. Throne is an archaic term. We don't have a lot of thrones around here. Uh, the only thrones we talk about are made out of porcelain, usually, around here. And so we don't talk a lot about thrones. But here's what you need to understand about that audience when you talk about a throne. A throne represents a king, right? A throne represents a king. Who was the king in Rome? Caesar. Everyone would have immediately thought, when we're going to talk about a throne, we're going to talk about Caesar. He is the king. He is the monarch. He is the absolute. He is the one that rules over all. His rule is absolutely sovereign. He gets power and honor and glory. He is everything in this empire. If he wants to do anything, he can do it. That is exactly what they would have understood when you talk about a throne. That is where their minds immediately move toward. The throne of Caesar. It impacted their lives every single day that Caesar ruled over them. That is what they would think. Um, the thing that's interesting here is John does not tell us who's sitting on the throne. He just says there's someone sitting on it. Now, in a minute, he's going to start to describe this person. But let me just tell you, who sits on the throne in your life is the most important question you can answer. Who sits on the throne in your life is the very most important question that you can answer. It has an impact on every single thing in your life. Who sits on the throne? And the reason that it is a question and not just a stated sort of dictate, this is who sits on the throne, is because the story of the Bible tells us that that was thrown up for grabs at the very beginning. If you have your Bibles, turn back to Genesis chapter 3. Okay, you need your Bibles because this isn't coming up on the screen. It's not in your outline. It's a good thing to bring your Bibles. Genesis chapter 3. And we read in Genesis chapter 3, and uh, starting in verse 1, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, 
Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat any fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows, now this is important, for God knows that when you eat it, when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And we know that the story plays out. Do they eat? They eat. And as they eat, everything changes because there is a coup in the garden for who sits on the throne. That terminology, throne terminology isn't used, but that's exactly what happens. Adam and Eve are compelled to move toward the throne, not to worship what's on the throne, but to replace what's on the throne. And they say, we want to be like God. We want to be like God. We want to be on the throne. We want to have control. We want to have comfort. We want our word to be the final word. We want our agendas to be followed. We want not to depend on someone else. We want to depend on ourselves. We want to make the call. We want the wisdom. We want, we want everything that comes with being the sovereign person that sits on the throne of our lives. Adam and Eve make that decision. Bummer for them because it has no impact on us, right? Wrong. We're all descended from Adam and Eve. That's the bad news. And we all pick up this little... You know, this little glitch in our character. We all want to sit on the throne. There is a battle for the throne. Every single one of us faces this battle for who's going to be the authority. Who's going to sit on the throne of my life? Uh, We want to have the power. We want to have the control. We want our agendas to be followed, right? We want those things. Last week, I'm on the elders' retreat. We're in Park City. It's the most beautiful place I've ever seen. We're with amazing people that really love God and are fun. I mean, you don't usually put those two things together, but they do both somehow. They're fun and they love God. And we're having a great, great time. And you know what? For a part of that retreat, I was miserable. Sitting there, I'm sulking. I totally don't want to be there. I'm ready to just go home. It's like I want to go out, you know, and just bury myself in snow. You know, I'm just like, you know why? Because my sitting on the throne was being threatened. I felt like there was some stuff that was going on and I wasn't getting my way. And it wasn't working out the way I thought. And I wasn't being given the weight that I think I deserve. And I sat there and I just stewed about it. And you know what it was? I was battling for the throne. I was saying, this is not the way it should be. Do these people not understand who I am? (laughs) I sit on the throne. And so I'm just telling you, you know what? You're not that much different than me. You aren't. You do the same thing. We battle. We do it in different ways, but we battle for the throne. We want to have that kind of control. And so the issue in history always has been, and the issue for you always will be, who sits on the throne. Who sits on the throne? And it's so interesting that John opens up the first glimpse into heaven is this throne. And so the question arises, who sits on the throne? Now, here's one of the ways we know what's on the throne in our lives. It's what we worship. Now, let me talk to you for a second about worship. Worship, we tend to have defined very narrowly. 
we talk about the first part of the service at a church as worship. In fact, worship usually equals what? Singing. That's when we worship. We sing, we worship. So I want to push that out because we don't just call this a service. We call this a worship service, right? Are we all playing together? Yeah, you're just not that interested in this part. That's okay. We'll be out of it in a second. But this is important, okay? So, but I just want to tell you, what we do in here is not just worship either. In fact, worship's not a religious activity. Worship is something that every single person does every single day. It is a human activity. In fact, the Bible says it's an activity of all creation. And all worship means is you ascribe worth to something. Uh, and, you know, we know it's even stronger than that. We, when we worship something, it's like we honor it and we consider it sacred. And it gets top billing in our life. And so uh, all of us are worshiping. When you see guys that paint their bodies blue and go shirtless when it's below freezing at a football game, it is not a brain surgeon that says, I think they're kind of devoted to this team. You know, it's like they're worshiping this team. They consider what they're doing a sacred act of worship when they do something like that. And we all say, that is so goofy. I would never do that. Do you do that with your work? Do you consider your work sacred? Is it top billing in your life? If anything else comes along, work is going to get top precedent because I honor work, because I get myself worth for my work. Work, work, work. Maybe it's your families, and you say, family is what is tops in my life. It is the most important thing. I'll put everything second. I'll make any decision that is best for my family. That is top billing. Maybe it's your health. Whatever it means, I'm going to be healthy. I'm going to eat right. I'm going to exercise. I'm going to do these things. I'm going to go to the doctor. Maybe it's the image of your body. I'm going to go have surgeries. I'm going to spend tons of money on making myself look good because that is what is so important to me. We all worship. We all put these things up on the throne and we say, that is the most important thing. And here's what I want to tell you about yourself. We know it. People know what you worship. If you spend any time with me, you'd know what I worship. You know how we know? Because you talk about it. Because when you start to talk about it, you get a sparkle in your eye. Because your voice raises three octaves when you get excited talking about this thing. Because you organize your priorities around it. Because you spend money on it. We worship. We're made to worship. It's a human activity. And here's what's true. We know that what we worship is what we've put on the throne. That's how we determine what we, what's on the throne, is we worship it. Now, here's the thing that's super interesting, is even though it seems like we have control over what is worshipped or what is on the throne, we actually don't. And that's the point that John's making here. It doesn't matter what we think is on the throne, there is someone who is on the throne. And so we go back to Revelation 4, verse 3, and it says this, And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, a rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled the throne. Is that clear? I hope not. I mean, what? That doesn't even describe a person. Well, again, symbolism here, and so John is using certain symbols. Those were very precious stones. The idea is that light is emanating out of the throne, and it's coming out in these forms that look like these precious, precious, precious 
stones. The stones generally symbolize something. We aren't positive about it. We think that the jasper symbolizes holiness and majesty, that the ruby symbolizes uh, judgment because it's red, sort of judgment, and that the rainbow, well, we have a rainbow earlier in Scripture. When the rainbow was shown, what was God telling people? I'll never destroy you again. There's always hope. Uh, You'll never be wiped out again. You can hold on to me. There is mercy. And so you have this, again, this description of God where it is sort of these these characteristics that are coming off of the stage or, or out of the throne. But, you know, this idea of God sitting on the throne is throughout Scripture. Psalm 47, 8. Let's read it together. It says this. Psalm 40. uh, Are we there? Did I give you that? You don't have it? You have it on on your thing. Okay, so let's read it together. Outlines up. Here we go. Let's read it together. God reigns over the nations. God is seated on his holy throne. Isaiah 6, 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. An amazing story right there. We covered it a few months ago. Uh, Daniel 7.9, just incidentally, Daniel is written during a time called the exile. The people were in terrible trouble. There is some apocalyptic literature in Daniel, actually, which is interesting. And right in the center of that apocalyptic literature, we have this statement in Daniel 7.9. Let's read it together. As I looked... Thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was white like wool. His throne was flaming with fire, and its wheels were all ablaze. I have no idea what the wheels are in that. But Daniel is giving this picture of this throne, and on it is clearly God. So we know that God is on the throne, but you know what? There's someone else that's on the throne, too. God the Father, not only God the Father, Revelation 4, 4 and 5. Let's read that together. It says, surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones and seated on them were 24 elders. Stop for a second. Let me tell you about the elders. The elders, again, there's lots of speculation about the 24 elders because they play kind of a prominent role throughout the book of Revelation. But the best guess and what I think is right is the 24 elders represent the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament and the 12 apostles in the New Testament, which are symbolic for God's people. God's people in the Old Testament, God's people in the New Testament. In other words, the 24 elders are God's people that are surrounding this throne. It says, they were dressed, let's read it together, they were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. In front of the throne, now this is important, in front of the throne, we're going to guess who this is. All right, everybody, ready to guess? (laughs) You guys are like, this is just crazy, Kevin. Okay, we're going to guess, all right, because you can get this. All right, so here's who we're going to guess. Here's the description. Seven lamps were blazing. Okay, we have no clue about lamps. But these are the seven spirits of God. Before you guess, let me help you. What does seven symbolize? Completion or, right along with that, perfection. So we have the perfect spirit, which might be the Holy Spirit. You guys are brilliant. Absolutely. You guys know. There you go, the black mamba, right there. Holy Spirit, right? You guys know. Very good. All right, so you have the Holy Spirit, and and the statement here is you have this picture of God the Father, sort of the Ancient of Days, this 
you know, what, what you picture God the Father looking like, but then it says, and the Holy Spirit is there too. This, we're start going to get very Trinitarian here in a second, but it doesn't stop there because we go over to Revelation 5, 5 and 6. And then it says this. Let's read this, 5 and 6. It says, Then one of the elders said to me, one of the elders out of how many? 24. We know there's 24 elders that represent who? God's people, right? Old Testament, New Testament, all of God's people. That's who it represents. Says this, Do not weep. John was starting to snivel and cry, and we know he's the wimpy disciple. Uh, he's always the one, you know, leaning on Jesus' breast and all that. I'm just kidding. He wasn't wimpy. Don't tell him I said that when you see him. Okay, so do not weep. See, all right, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Who is the lion of the tribe of Judah? Jesus, right? And this is a prophecy that's made all the way back in Genesis that from Judah's tribe is going to come the Messiah, the lion of Judah. And then we say the root of David. Why is it called the root of David? Because he's from the lineage of David. Good, you guys are smart. Has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and the seven seals. The scroll is God's plan for the future. That's what's happening. The book of Revelation is this sort of drama about unrolling the scroll that's going to tell God's plan for the future. And only the Lion of Judah and the root of David is qualified to open it. So we get this idea, this very powerful image of Jesus because he's going to open the seal and he's a lion and he's powerful and he does all kinds of gnarly things. And we see that in, in Revelation, right? Because at the end of Revelation, what does he come back? He comes back on a white horse and he kills not everyone, good thing, because we don't want to die. He kills, though, all the bad guys. Like, and you know how he does it? He says one word and they're all dead. It's so great. They all, some of you said Armageddon, right? How many people are on Armageddon to fight? Jesus. It's innumerable. It says it's like the sand on the seashore. And there's this big hype about this final battle. And you know what happens? Jesus comes out on the white horse with us all following because we're going to like participate in this. We're going to get ours. And you know what? He says one word and the battle's over. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. There is no one that compares. He is sovereign in total control. That is absolutely true about Jesus. He created the heavens and the earth with one word, or actually with a phrase, sorry, let there be light. That's who he is. He hold, it says he holds together all of the universe with his pinky. He is the lion. But then we get this another image. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. Who is the lamb? Jesus it's not just a lamb. It is a lamb that is slain. You know how they slayed lambs back then? Slit their throat. This is a gruesome image. Every Jew would have known what a slain lamb looks like. They would have seen it every year on the Day of Atonement when the lambs were slain. On the Passover when the lambs were slain. It is gruesome. Why does God say... Here's what I want you to think of when you think of Jesus. I want you to think of a lamb slain. Why would he say that? Because our forgiveness is totally based on it. It's the reason we're in. It's the reason we get to play. It's the reason that God loves us. It's because he was slain for us. And it's so interesting because the power actually doesn't come out of the lion side of Jesus. If you read Revelation, the actor throughout the book is the slain lamb. The power of his sacrifice for us. 
and he stands on the center of the throne. Why is he not sitting? Because he's active. Because he's the mover and the shaker in the book of Revelation. He is prone. He's ready to go. So here's the picture. We have a throne in the center of the universe. There's 24 elders, all the church that's around it. There's the four living creatures. Many people believe those were special angels that were set to administer to God. Then we have another statement that there's thousands and ten thousands of angels flying all around this throne. Then we have another picture that all of creation is there because it says every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. So you're getting this huge crowd that is all around. You have lightning and thunder and all kinds of things that are happening. And on the center of this throne is not you and is not me. Turn to your neighbor and say, you are not on the throne. Go ahead, just tell them, because they thought they were before you said that. Yeah, exactly. You're not on the throne. I'm not on the throne. We're not on the throne. God is on the throne. And you see, here's the deal. That is the reality. That is the reality of what we look at. And here's what I want to tell you. Worship is when we get clear about that. When we worship God, we get clear about who's on the throne. The most important question that we'll ever ask, the most important question we'll ever work through. Who is on the throne? When we have clarity, everything else in our life falls into place. Where you stand falls into place. Where I stand. What decisions we should make. How we should treat other people. It all comes into focus when we're clear about who's on the throne. And when we worship, we acknowledge it again and again and again. And so, you know, as we come in to gather at the beginning of a service and we're singing songs and, you know, sometimes people will say, you know, I'm just not into singing. I don't like to sing. I'm not really into worship. It's like, hey, hey, attitude change, attitude change. Listen, you don't have to have a great voice. You don't have to be the loudest singer in the group. It is time to get clarity. It's time to tune your heart. You know, all of us have preferences, right? We have preferences about who leads our worship uh, with singing. We have preferences about who gets up and speaks and delivers God's word. We have preferences about how loud things are, how fast things are. We have preferences about all kinds of things, and preferences aren't bad unless you check out because your preference isn't being met. Because when you do it, it's not all about God. It's all about you. And here's one thing we notice around the throne. Jesus isn't going around saying, hey, is this working for you? Are you enjoying this right now? You know, all these angels, I can tell them to be quiet. If they're a little loud for you, we'll, we'll sort of dummy it down. Hey, do you like the harp thing that's going on? Because I can get that gone if you don't want to have it. All I want is for you to be happy. Jesus isn't going around saying that. You know why? Because I don't think Jesus cares. I don't think he cares about how we're responding. Worship is not for us. Worship is for God. It is always for God. It's always our attitude and our heart. When we come together to worship, it is our moment of clarity to put God on the throne in our lives, to acknowledge what's already true and say, listen, you rule and I don't. You lead and I follow. What you think is best is what's best. That's what I know. When I worship, that's what I know.
And we are going to spend the next four weeks talking about this, about the importance of this thing we call worship, of how we put God in the center. We're going to become better at it as a church. We're going to lean into it. We're going to use Revelation to help us. And it's going to be an amazing time as we worship. So will you bow your head for a second and close your eyes? And I'd like you to just think about this. Is there anything that's on the throne that needs to be removed right now in your life? Anything you're thinking of, this has to go because it's competing. It's pushing God off. This is your time to get clarity. You'll never be more clear than you are right now. This is the time to say, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, God the Father, they are on the throne. God, we come to you and we recognize that we are constantly in a battle. We are constantly vying for the place that really only you should sit in, this throne. And right now, in the quietness and the clarity of this place, we want to put you on the throne to acknowledge you're already there and to organize our lives around it. Now, Jesus, accept our worship. May this please you, not may this please us. May this please you, what we're doing in our hearts and our coming out in our body. We honor you, the Holy One that sits on the throne.